Wait, Dr. Milo is your favorite character? No, no, not, not my favorite. Well, one of my favorites. I just think he's oh. a lot of fun. My favorite character, that would that would almost be absurd, wouldn't it? But no, no, he's one of my favorites. There was a podcast called The Sequel Cast. They talked about movies. And they talked about something else called boobies. The Sequel Cast. It's the sequel cast. It's the sequel cast. www.sequelcast.com. Hello and welcome to the sequel cast. This is a podcast where we talk about movies in a franchise, one movie at a time. I am your host, Uncle Milkshake, and we're in the middle of a series of episodes on Planet of the Apes. This time around, we're going to be talking about the third film, Escape from Planet of the Apes. With me is uh, Thrasher. Howdy. Uh, Jersey Jason. Hey. And special guest Rich Handley, author of the Hello. book Timeline of the Planet of the Apes, The Definitive Chronology. Good to have That's you. That's the title. Is it truly definitive? Uh, it's as definitive as I could make it. It covers uh, every film, every TV episode, every cartoon, every novel and novelization, a uh, bunch of stuff probably people never heard of and a uh, number of unpublished materials that I got from the authors of all of the above. So it's, uh, it's, it's about as definitive as I think I could make it. Well, I notice on the product description on Amazon, it, it's, it says Volume 1. Do you have a, a second volume planned? <laughs> That's actually a mistake from Amazon. It's just uh, there's no Volume 2 of it. It, it, and I've asked them to remove it. <laughs> <laughs> There is a second book that that, uh, that I've, I've written, but it's not a volume two of a timeline. It's a uh, an encyclopedia um, uh, lexicon of the Planet of the Apes that I've is the second draft's written, and uh, I'm hoping to have it out by the fall or so. Right now, it's with some fact checkers, and uh, then the artist is going to start laying it out. But it's not. There's no volume numbers on these. Wow, fantastic! Uh, so I really loved in the introduction you mentioned that the first time you saw Planet of the Apes was on a TV marathon you would watch with your mother? Yeah. <laughs> that was uh, back in the back in the 70s. Uh, you guys are not from the New York area, right? No. I'm okay, from New, New York. Okay, so are you familiar with the 430 movie? Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it, it ended in 81, so, I mean, unless you're above a certain age, it's going to be a distant memory anyway. Um, but in, in, back in the late 70s to the early 80s, there was a Channel 7 in the New York area uh, had a sh- movie showcase called the 430 Movie. Uh, if you go on YouTube and look up the, the promo, you'll see it. It's a really cheesy theme, but it sticks in your head after you've heard it every day for, you know, five years. And uh, they did all these theme weeks. So they'd have a Monster Week and a, a Disaster Week, Planet of the Apes Week, and a whole bunch of different other ones. Um, and uh, that's what introduced me as a kid to all sorts of films, a whole bunch of movies of Charlton Heston and Godzilla and uh, Michael Crichton's Westworld, and uh, they had a, a weekly Planet of the Apes showcase. Um, they got four of the mov- movies in, even though it was five days, because they split the first film in two, and then they'd show the fifth film some other week, because it was idiotic programming, But and all the movies were really badly edited uh, for TV, but, uh, but it's what got me into it. Because you've got to fit those commercials in somewhere. Of course. Otherwise, you can't pay for it. You know, it's weird. They don't do that much anymore 
well, they haven't done it in a long time. I remember being at my grandmother's sick and watching like the uh, twelve o'clock movies and seeing all the these just strange, strange movies. But now they only play like the kid-friendly ones, so that all the family can gather on ABC or you know, it's usually owned by ABC or Fox or whatever to watch a movie. Because you got cable yeah, now. Yeah, it's strange movies. Yeah, it seems like all all the really good movies that uh that I watched as kids are all but forgotten unless you watch them on DVD. Nobody does that anymore. Channel 11 in New York also used to do that. Channel 11 uh, used to run Godzilla Again, that films and, an argument. Sci-Fi Channel doesn't play any of the great sci-fi movies anymore. We know it's it doesn't, part, even, part it doesn't even play the bad sci-fi films. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it plays wrestling, for crying out loud. Yeah. We know what's what's part and parcel with all this is that you know the the age of the local TV horror host has has really come and gone, and I I feel we've lost a lot with that. Absolutely, absolutely. But I remember watching some of the Planet of the Apes films on Doctor Mad Blood's movie back in Norfolk, Virginia, and that was a great show, and they showed some great classic sci-fi and horror films. The uh, in the heyday of Sci-Fi Channel um, was in like I guess. I don't know, maybe five or five years or so after it debuted. Uh, someone at that period, they had uh, they used to they used to they used to do that. They used to showcase um, things like uh, I don't know. They would have uh, what's it called, short attention span theater, where they would take classic sci-fi shows that only ran a short period of time and couldn't be syndicated, and they would rerun them. So you get oh, to see God, yes. for the first time. Oh in yes, the 70s. Sci-Fi World, Trailer Park. Oh, all like that. I love Trailer Park. Trailer Park was the best. And, oh, you know, Jim Davis, great host. Yeah, absolutely, great stuff. And what do we have now? We, in addition to, you know, they had the, uh, what's it called, Passions, a soap opera they ran a few years ago. Um, that Don't John Edwards more about on. that. Is that an no, I enjoy Passions. I'm glad the Sci-Fi Channel showed it. Uh, I just <laughs> wish I could still see Passions on TV today. Hey, and you know what? That had a chimpanzee, did it not? No, it had a orangutan. It had an orangutan. Had in all fairness, I never saw it, so I, I can't really judge. I just, I guess, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I have a bias. I heard soap opera, <laughs> and knowing knowing sci-fi's um, schedule with things like uh, John Edwards and Ghost Hunters that aren't sci-fi, and, and you know, I went, oh come on. So I may, may, maybe I'd enjoy it. I don't know. <laughs> well, it was a soap opera that was originally on NBC, but it had supernatural elements. One of the characters was a witch. Another character was an animated doll who was effectively like a golem. There was an uh, an undead character, a mermaid character. Uh, See, this is why I said don't get well started. <laughs> well, uh, apparently I misspoke. Uh, the question is, did it have any talking apes? I don't. I mean, speaking of ape that TV shows, I remember when uh, a while it might have been even like ten years ago. I guess it was. I was in high school then, but a was it A and E or AMC that did the behind the Planet of the Apes documentary that covered all AMC, of the, yes. Hey. All five, it was, yeah, all and in fact, films. it's on DVD, too. Right, and it, it's, it's a wonderful piece of work to watch because it has interviews with all these people before they died, like Roddy McDowell and Frank Thompson. Absolutely. And I think it's the best documentary of Planet of the Apes ever done, in my opinion. Mm. Is Are the documentaries in the new Blu-ray release any good? or? Uh, you know, the Blu-ray release has some of the older stuff and it's got some new. I, I um, For my money... Uh, I still, I, I mean, they're good. There's a lot of bad stuff on that too, though. Like that, there's a trivia game that's just idiotic. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, the thing is, that when you watch a lot of these specials, a lot of them seem to have a lot of recycled footage. You'll see the same sound bites and the same two or three people, um, uh, two or three experts speaking about the movies and such. 
mean, that's always and unfortunately you can't find. I mean, at this point, a lot of them are dead, so I, I guess their their hands are tied. And that you know, to try to do a new documentary at this point is only a limited number of interviews you can do at this point. Right, and with the Planet of the Apes site, when all that stuff was around um, on the DVD the first time around, they released the live-action Planet of the Apes series on DVD, and the commercials hailed it as a series that redefined television. Did it? Uh, well, I have you seen it? it? I, I have I, uh, not, other than clips in the documentary, but it just seemed... Redefining television is probably a bit of a hyperbole. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the very idea of doing a TV show of a movie that's already been done and calling it redefining is kind of ironic anyway since it's, it's really can't be redefining it it's it's defining it as something that was already done um i, I like the tv show i'm so i, I want to clarify that that's not knocking the show it is a different animal though i mean it, it's basically the fugitive it's really the, the incredible hulk but but you take out big green guy you know and put in ape it's uh it, it's you know it's, it's largely the same formula pretty much every episode is these two astronauts and their eight friend go town to town and um, solve people's problems and every now and then the police constable who's trying to find them shows up and almost arrests them so it's like I say it's the fugitive and the Incredible Hulk um, but that said uh, despite the despite the repetition and the formulaic writing it's a lot of fun I wouldn't say it redefined anything <laughs> but it was a, it was a good show what about the uh, Planet of the Apes cartoon yeah the cartoon uh, Which we should have talked about the last episode because it takes place it takes place on the future Earth with the people no well no it doesn't really take place it takes place with the people from from our time well it, it takes place the cartoon takes place around the same time as the second movie but yeah. it, uh, it it it's definitely not the same timeline I mean. Ape City is, is uh, technological. There's, there's airplanes, and there's, there's um, for some reason, a lot of TV news journalists. There seem to be a... Well, you know, it's much news. more like the book, because the book Absolutely. is much... It's more like the novel, yeah. Yeah, and it's, um, there are, you know, when you consider that that era was known for putting out such gems as Speed Buggy and Grape Ape, <laughs> uh... <laughs> it's, a, it's it, there's, you know, there's a lot to be said for it. There's definitely some intelligent aspects of the show. But then there's also a gigantic ice ape called Kygor who sits on a mountain and swaps planes. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it's what you would expect from a 70s television show, um, a 70s cartoon show, I should say. And yet I think the reason it failed ultimately is that despite the fact that it was on in a time slot when kids were watching, um, it has it, it's pretty heady. It has the same, um, the same motif as the films in the live-action show, which is the idea of, Examining uh, examining man through anthropomorphizing uh, uh, apes and, and giving them um, giving them attributes humanity had and you know the whole Gulliver's Travel thing going on there with uh, with uh, <clears throat> examining mankind through absurdity. I don't think the average seven year old got that. <laughs> we, um, you know it it could have been kookier. You know Sid and Marty Croft could have gotten the rights to it. You know at times it almost looks like they did. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, I, I'm just trying to picture the apes done like Sigma and the Sea Monsters. That would have been interesting. All I can think of is there was a live-action Ninja Turtle show with people in suits at the um, in the 90s, and there was an evil ape. Was it really? I never saw that. Yeah, um, I think maybe the pilot episode might be on DVD. You know what I'm talking about, Jason? Oh man! Somebody, yeah, there was a there was a pink. 
female turtle. Called Venus. No, she was Robin's Egg Blue. Robin's Egg Blue was her color. Her name is Venus. <laughs> Why is this not a surprise, you know? Uh, and, uh, but there's a bad guy that's an ape that's dressed like a 1930s gangster that smokes cigars and wears a hat. Well, you well, know what I love? What about, what was the name of the, um, I believe it was an orangutan. Yes. What was the name of the orangutan from MST-K30-3000? Oh, it was, a, it was Professor Bobo. Professor Bobo. Yeah. Bobo. God, yeah. I was trying to remember that. Played by Kevin Murphy, I believe. Mm-hmm. Again, that was, I think that's the best, that's the latest monkey person I think I've seen. Have you seen anything more recently except for the Tim Burton movie in pop culture? Uh, well, yeah, actually, uh, the, the first episode of uh, Minuteman, uh, The Middleman, um, which, if you haven't seen it, rush out now and buy it on DVD, and no, I don't make any money off saying that. <laughs> but uh, the first episode uh, was, uh, I think it was either the first or the, maybe might have been the second one, but it was one of the very first episodes, was uh, um, definitely a riff on, it's funny you, you talk about an apes in, in 30s gangster guard, because basically it, it was a riff on Planet Under the Apes and The Godfather at the same time. Wow. <laughs> That's cool. Have yeah. To, the Middleman's absolutely hilarious. It's uh, written by um, one of the guys who wrote for Lost, and it only ran like 13 or 14 episodes because re- really stupidly it was on the Family Channel, which of course is not where people tend to go for science fiction. <laughs> but I suppose since you can't find science fiction on the Sci-Fi Channel, you might as well put the science fiction on the Family Channel. God. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the Tim Burton movie you mentioned in the intro to your book, uh, Timeline of the Planet of the Apes, that a lot of the spin-offs of that more recent uh, Tim Burton movie were more enjoyable than the movie itself. Is there a spin-off or two that stands out as being enjoyable if one wanted to read uh, a comic or a book in the Planet of the Apes universe? Well, um, the best thing that can be said about the spin-offs is that there's is that um, Mark Wahlberg and Estella Warren aren't acting in them. <laughs> um, so by definition, they're better. In terms of the best, I would say that there's two novels called The Fall and Colony, um, which focus on the crew of the Oberon after they, after they crash in the past. Uh, the, um, the attempts to survive on a barren world, the uh, an explanation of how the apes ended up becoming intelligent and who Themos was. Um, and for my money, these are really good stories. And if you can get over the fact that they take place in the same universe, as as um, as uh, Mark Wahlberg's character, uh, and he's not in it, so don't worry. But it, because obviously he's he's you know in the future. Um, but if you can get over the fact that it takes place in that universe, they're actually quite good. The comics are pretty good too, though uneven. But I, if you're looking for one specific thing, I would say that it's a, those two novels, uh, The Fallen Colony, more than any of them. However, some people simply don't want won't want to read them because it takes place in that universe, and I understand that. I have a couple of friends who absolutely love Planet of the Apes and won't even read the section of the timeline book that I work. Any any sections that I focus on Burton's film, they say skip them. So, <laughs> but you know, that's also uh, the problem. Can't please everybody. Uncle Milkshake right? and Thrasher want to do the Tim Burton movie. I am against it, but I think I'd be interested in what I, I think I'd be interested in that timeline. Well, as I say, I think we should have an episode that's just us debating the merits of of whether or not to review that as part of the series. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> you know, I got to tell you, I'm um, I'm on the fence with this one only because I don't think, and I'm I'm probably going to uh, uh, offend anyone who's listening to the show and enjoys Planet of the Apes, but I don't think it was a terrible film. I know that the rest of the world does. Uh, 
I don't think it was a great film uh, by any stretch of the words. And the ed- ending was idiotic, and, and some of the actors were, were poorly cast. But I mean, I think I think it had a lot going for it. I think the problem was execution more than anything. Um, I think mm. there was a decent film waiting to be done in there. It wasn't done. Um, but I tend to be a little kinder with that movie than I think I probably than it probably deserves. If nothing else, the makeup effects in it and just some of the set design is quite uh, wonderful to look at. at. At least on the male apes, the the, the females look <laughs> like Michael Jackson, but the males are really well done. Uh, yeah, I, I think they tried to make the female apes look a little bit too feminine than they needed it's, to. Because the, the the wig on Helen Bonham Carter is was borrowed from Michael Jackson. I, I, well, I guess the other thing is like an ape in makeup is inherently funny, even if it's a humanoid ape that can speak. Mm. Yes. Well, you know, part of the thing is that they wanted to, and to me this was just odd. They wanted to have the idea of a sexual love triangle uh, be- between. Um, uh, Davidson and Ari and uh, and Dana and it, it's a very it's a flawed concept by its very nature because it's two humans and an ape so why are you even doing that? But in order to do that, they couldn't they couldn't have her look like a real chimpanzee because that would be bestiality. So they had to make her more humanized. That's my opinion. I mean, I, I can't. I've never actually seen someone come right out and say that, but that's what I think it was. Well, let's get started with our discussion on Escape from the Planet of the Apes, the third film in the Planet of the Apes series mm-hmm. I, you know I haven't seen this one in a while and when I watched it again uh, for this show it really struck me as starting out as a very funny comedy satire and it gets very very dark towards the end and all of these older Planet of the Apes movies kind of have that formula to some extent the last part I was saying is that a lot. I noticed a lot of these Planet of the Apes movies start out as one sort of genre and then end up as being more dark mm-hmm. and depressing as the story goes on. Well, that's definitely true of, uh, of, 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 uh, of Escape. And I think that that's one of the things that makes it possibly my favorite film. My, my favorite, I guess, changes over time. I like all five of them. But uh, more often than not, I'll say that the first or third are my favorites. And part of the reason is exactly what you just said. Uh, I really like how... I really like seeing how it goes from being a fish-out-of-water comedy uh, focused on, on the charm of Cornelius and Zira um, to being this really depressing ending. Um, and a large part of that, a large part of what makes that work, in my opinion, is the character of Halfline, uh, who I, I think is easily the best villain in the movie series. Because he's the only three-dimensional one. He actually shows remorse for what he's doing. He actually seems to wrestle with the idea that he's going against the will of God. And... Um, Everybody else is either, I hate humans, or I hate apes. And so that's why I think makes it work so much. So that, that ending at the, that ending then uh, is powerful. You've got this really great villain character meeting these two people, or I should say killing these two people that were set up with this fish-out-of-water comedy, and it, it really is depressing in the end. And Kim Hunter does such a great job as uh, Zira. Absolutely. This is really her show. She has quite a main role in it, and she does so much with her facial expression, and uh, so does Roddy McDowell, of course. But well, that's but somewhere yeah, I've got to I've got to heap a lot of praise on these actors when um, when when they're in the laboratory in the zoo and they're being tested. They are really exhibiting some amazingly well observed behavior. Their their physical and behavioral acting oh, it is is just spot on. You know, from what I, I absolutely agree, from what I recall from things I've read, it seems that um, 
that was very important to Roddy McDowell. And uh, part of what made the other movies, um, what gave the, the, the apes their mannerisms in the other films is, is Roddy McDowell was very exacting about this. And, uh, and Kim Hunter, obviously, uh, was as well. But I, I've seen several, I've seen Roddy McDowell quoted several times uh, saying that it was very important to him that he come off ape-like. I've seen. I've, I've heard I love uh, his expressions in the movie. His his brow work is brilliant. I'm sorry, it was very crackly there. I did. I no, I'm, sorry. I'm um, sorry. His his brow work with with his makeup, the oh, way he brow work, yeah, owl by his brow, and also Absolutely. Kim Hunter's Kim Hunter's eyes look so wonderful in the makeup, and they always look wet and dewy, like very like as if oh, God. There's that unknown intelligence that um. That Uli in the in the novel talks about and seeing the intelligence in her eye and, and the inquisitiveness and Kim Hunter just totally has that. You know what? Uh, what's especially impressive about both the, about both actors there is just imagine how hard it must be to work when you've got pounds of makeup covering the majority of your face, uh, so that even if you move, the expression may not even be visible. Which means that, for example, moving the brow, you have to really over-exaggerate your movements, um, or else it comes off as almost like you're not moving at all. So I think it's amazingly impressive that they are so emotive. Um, in some cases, they're more emotive than the humans who aren't wearing any, you know, aren't wearing kind of stuff on their faces. We well, you know, should should we actually uh, go over the the arc of this film? Yes. I, I've noticed we've talked about some key moments, but we haven't actually uh, summarized the story yet. Sure, go ahead. So the, the end of the second film, uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, ended with a nuclear explosion. Earth was wiped off the face of the map. Earth is wiped off the face of the Earth. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. And, uh, we blew it up. And yet, popular apes from the series, Cornelius and Zira, managed to escape on astronaut Taylor's spaceship. Somehow yes, managed they managed to salvage his craft. Salvage his craft, take off, time travel back to the uh, 60s, uh, no, they travel back in time to 1973, if I recall. Yes. All right, back to 1973. <laughs> and... Which was not when, which was not when Taylor came from. Right, he's from '72. Hmm. And I mean, this one, in a lot of ways, it's like the first film uh, reversed, because you have the spaceship. It opens with the spaceship crashing in the ocean, which was a big imagery in the first film. Except this time around, the uh, spaceship pops open, two astronauts pop out, and they take off. Oh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely. It's a, re a role reversal in this one. Absolutely. But with a lot more comedy thrown in because it's tragic to see, it, it, you know, be, being humans, we're going to be humanocentric. So it's tragic to see a, a human stuck in a, in a world where, uh, where humans are, are dumb. But it's kind of funny to see an ape stuck in a world where the apes are dumb. So it, I think that also leads to the to the comedy you mentioned before. But otherwise, yeah, it's a very much a role reversal, and I think it's why it works so well. And of course, all the, all the military brass are there to to welcome the, these astronauts back because they they all assume it's returning U.S. astronauts. And then, of course, the helmets of the three astronauts come off, and it is revealed that they are in fact three surviving apes. Yep. And uh, Milo is introduced in this scene, and I. Uh, one of my favorite characters in the series. I understand why the story demanded he die when he did, but it's a shame we didn't get to see more of him. Wait, Dr. Milo is your favorite character? No, no, not, not my favorite. Well, one of my favorites. I just think he's oh. a lot of fun. 
My favorite character, that would be, that would almost be absurd, wouldn't it? But no, no, he's one of my favorites. <laughs> well, no, because he's, he's played by... What did you think of Sal Mineo as, as Dr. Milo? I mean, what's amazing about his performance? <sighs> wow, I've never actually... Probably because I've never voiced it before, so I've never had to come up with a reason for it. Um, uh, you know, it, it's not like it's not like I'm sitting in awe of the guy or anything. It's more like I just find him entertaining. You know, I um, first of all, part part of it is just the concept that here you have in a future world, um, the apes seem actually they're they're very inconsistent. They can perform experimental brain surgery, but they live in Adobe huts. So go figure. <laughs> but so. Uh, so putting that a contradiction aside, the, these these aren't apes that have embraced the concept of innovation for the most part, other than the chimpanzees. And yet, as you mentioned, you have one that, in an exceedingly short period of time, manages to find a spacecraft that has had its hatch blown off. So it's filled with water. The hatch is somewhere at the bottom of the lake. It's filled with water, and all of the equipment had to have been shorted out, and it's run out of fuel. And he manages to pull this several-ton piece of machinery to the to the to the beach, find the hatch, reattach it, um, get all, figure out how to how to fuel it, how to fly it, and then somehow launch it. So to me, that's what makes him so much fun because it's, uh, it's so over the top, ridiculous. I'm sorry. And technically, wouldn't he have had to have done it in like two days? Yeah, he would have had a very short period of time to do this. So. <laughs> So maybe my, my saying is one of my favorite characters isn't so much because uh, because of anything, one, one particular thing he did. It just, because to me, it's funny. <laughs> you know, as much as I love the third film, it really does require uh, a suspension of disbelief to accept uh, uh, to accept that, that, that the very premise of it is even possible. Well, sure, and all of these uh, Planet of the Apes films work on two levels, because a child could watch them and say, like, oh, that's very funny, it's an ape, their face looks so funny, they eat bananas. Yet, all the things they talk about in the films are pretty deep, weighty issues they discuss in ten-minute uh, dialogues with each other in these long scenes. I think that's true for a lot of science fiction. I know that as a kid, I thought the Gorn was cool because he was a, a giant green lizard that beat up Captain Kirk. <laughs> as I got older, I realized a lot more to that story was there. <laughs> you mentioned the whole premise is sort of camping over the top for this film and how they get back to uh, Earth from Earth, so to speak, in the future. And right. the music by Jerry Goldsmith helps with that sort of campy feel. It's very 70s, mm -hmm. very ridiculous, and makes the film feel bigger than it is. Each of these movies had a lower budget as they went on. This one doesn't that have any true. hot ape action. Uh, no, instead it's got um, uh, fashion scenes. <laughs> yes. And that's, one, that's a good example of where the music you mentioned works well. There's a, there's a certain... Um, silliness to the music in those scenes and it works but you know we're talking about goldsmith i mean the guy can do no wrong actually what you you were mentioning like fashion scenes when uh when the apes finally reveal that they're intelligent and kind of start being integrated into into american society i absolutely adore it when when they get dressed up and wear contemporary human clothing and i don't mean it's cute and like silly and adorable i mean that that I love that it's treated completely seriously, and I love that they wear actual high fashion from that era, and 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 really do kind of make make a, a decent, honest stab at, at assimilating. How about the scene where uh, Cornelius is sitting watching television in in, in his uh, in his nice robe? <laughs> oh, that's the right robe. Uh, you know, actually, 
that robe has inspired an internet meme. There's a whole series of uh, of icons of, of the shots of him in that robe with captions like "Shut the fuck up" or "What are you talking about?" things like that. I'm not surprised. <laughs> There's a great scene earlier on where the apes are in a cage, much like Taylor was in a cage in the ape village in the first film. And they're running these experiments to see, well, how smart are they? And they have uh, Zira put a bunch of blocks together in a puzzle. And she yeah. does this, and as she does it, she pauses and looks... Well, well the whole point is, the point is to get to a banana. That's the reward for solving the puzzle. <laughs> right. That's but as, should be. but as uh, she does it, she pauses and looks... And it looks like, in one way, she's looking towards the audience and grinning, saying, oh, this is a pretty funny movie, isn't it? But she's also looking at Cornelius <laughs> and grinning, saying, yeah. oh, these humans are so stupid, they want me to use blocks, I can do brain surgery, I can kill these people if I wanted. <laughs> you know, I, I suppose um, I suppose when making the film, the filmmakers probably had to know that uh, the only way to make those scenes to make the humor in this film work was to acknowledge, yeah, we're being silly. And as a result, it works. If they had taken it too seriously, it might have come off as corny. Well, I guess it, so it is like, it is the, the perfect... Oh, I'm saying it, it is... Okay. Oh, I'm, I'm still here. I'm just saying it's it's the perfect mixture of, of deadpan presentation mixed with a gentle winking to the audience. Absolutely. And she pulls it off because she's Kim Hunter. Well, again, again, her her eyes are brilliant. Um, I guess it also like thinks if you've been with the series from the beginning and you've watched it till the third movie, you kind of know all this. And it's funny to see how the humans are reacting. And at the same time, isn't it also reflective or a mirror of the uh, the novel where Uli uh, tries to assimilate into their society since it's not much different than his. And he's seen around town, so every time he goes to something, it's like kind of shocking that there's a human who can talk, who happens to be in the same car with you, or the same movie theater, or the same shopping mall. You know, it's interesting that um, in doing the first movie, they they re- they changed a lot, especially in terms of the technology from from the novel. Um, so they they I mean they kept a lot intact, but they they changed a lot of it in terms of the feel of it, the look of it. Second movie, they they ask the, the the novelist to submit a script. They don't use it. So what do they do with the third film? They basically do more of his novel than they did it than they than they did in either of the first two. Exactly, um, they just reverse it. And maybe they should have used it in more of the others. Maybe maybe they would have fared better as well. Mm. See, see that's one of the reasons why I don't like the end of uh, the Burton film is I think that they were trying at the end of the Burton film to do the end of the novel. Yeah. But yeah. the end of the novel works well. The end of the movie is just nonsensical. I mean, when he sees... See, because the Eiffel Tower looks like the Eiffel Tower. The Lincoln Monument with an ape face is not the same. Yeah, yeah look, it I, comes I off it silly. Ape Lincoln. Yeah, it looks ridiculous. And, and eh, But not only that, it, it, unless yeah. you're going to do a sequel, which they never did, the ending just doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, can you retcon it and figure out a way if they must have gotten to Earth? And yeah, of course you can, but it... It's just so out of left field, unless unless you're going to explain it, you know? And they don't. They sure well, are. I that's the problem, is it's, it's not entirely out of left field, because by that point, I was expecting a terrible attempt at a twist ending. Yeah, well, there's that, too. Yeah. Um, I, I'm under no delusions that it's a great film. I should make that clear, because I know I defended it before. It's just that I don't find it as offensive as a lot of people do. But I don't think it holds a candle to any of the other five. Sure. 
I, I really think they should have done a prequel just about Ape Lincoln. <laughs> about him being an attorney in Illinois. The life and times of Ape Lincoln. Uh, honestly, if they had done just a, a prequel where they focused on the Ape Lincoln statue for an hour, there might have been people who enjoyed it more than the other movie. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, this... but see, let's talk about how like, this movie, it takes a real dark turn. Especially when they're brought in for um, what the presidential review or when they meet with the scientists and stuff who want to know more about their society. And the whole thing mm-hmm. with the grape juice. This gets really dark. Just yeah. Oop, I'm gonna on. say that that whole grape juice scene where there, there's that there's Doctor Otto ha- uh, Haslin, where where Zira's alone with him and he's and he's trying to get her to drink so he can loosen her tongue and he says, Zira, wine is an excellent restorative. I assure you, <laughs> especially in cases of pregnancy, that that is just so immoral and so nasty. I mean, I've That's really come to hate German. You know, there's a couple ways to look at that. I mean, I, I've heard people defend the scene saying that um, that at the time it wasn't as well known the damage it could do, and that's possible. I've heard others say that, that women in Europe uh, drink a glass of wine and they're fine. Um, I tend to look at it the way you do, which, uh, which is that Hasline knew what he was doing. He's a scientist. He had to have known it would have to. I think the funnier thing is that she gets drunk to the point of passing out with about two sips. Yeah, she has no resistance, and that, that I guess this is just the way my mind works, but it's that wine scene is the only scene in this film that I feel strains credibility, only because Zira seems to not know what wine is, and, and also seems to not know what an alcoholic beverage is, which just seems preposterous. Why wouldn't the apes have developed alcoholic beverages? Yeah, uh, I mean, every civilization has alcohol, has fermentation, or has knowledge of fermentation. How could well, the apes not? They, have? Could be forbidden. They, in the they have uh, anesthesia, so they must understand about the effects that drugs can have on a system. So oh, yeah. it seems to me they would. They, you know, how, how would you develop anesthesia without having any knowledge whatsoever of <laughs> of the basic uh, use, basic use of drug, which would be a fermented grape? You know, I don't know. But it, it's the whole inconsistency of the uh, brain surgery people living in a in a, an adobe hut. Yeah, um, but I agree with you that that scene it really does kind of shred credibility. Um, she has the worst uh, tolerance I've ever seen in my life. She practically gets drunk smelling it. <laughs> well, you have to wonder if she doesn't know what it is. For all we know, she downed a whole bottle right before that scene, and this just put her. Yeah, over there. there you go. Maybe she was. Uh, Still having horrible memories of the really bad makeup job on the giant ape in the uh, in, in the museum. And are lightweights. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I mean, another thing you look back at this film at the time this was rated G. Keep in mind there is no PG thirteen at the time. You just said G. Right. Was this rated? G? Yeah, it's rated G. Yep. You have a baby ape shot at close range several times. <laughs> yeah. And then thrown in in the water. You have a, a guy fall from a high tower, and you watch him land, and his legs crumple beneath him. Mm. Yeah, this is something for kids. Yeah. <laughs> well, wait, can we talk a little bit about the, uh, the darkness of the movie and why that happens? Yes, sure. I mean, I mean, there's this there's this prophecy. I guess they understand that this could be their future if they let apes, I guess, evolve to a point where where they take over, where humanity kind of sits down and and decides to regress instead of fighting the, their ape captors. And they talk about all the things that they do to humans and how uncivilized and how beastly 
humans are in the future. And, and, and the question arises, well, how do we get that way? And they're frightened of just one ape, of, of the baby that could, that could, I guess, propagate, who could uh, uh, breed with other apes and make super intelligent apes, and they think that's what's going to do it? Well, now, is well, there you know, any, any reference to the plague in this movie, correct? Well, you, you raise an excellent point. Um, I mean, they, they do make reference to, uh, to the plague, uh, which they also mentioned in the fourth film. You, you raise an excellent point. Uh, it seems like it seems like um, they're kind of missing the forest for the trees when you consider what they do in the next film, because they they're so concerned about stopping the propagation, they overlook entirely the warnings about about apes being enslaved. So that you know, two see, decades they, later, they, apes are. Oops, I'm sorry. They're humans. They think that they can get away with it as long as they don't have any talking apes. As long as no exactly. apes can communicate that way. As long as they can't communicate the regular way that they communicate, okay? Um, they think that they've got a handle on it. We, we, that's why they have those um, those training facilities in the fourth movie, is that they yeah. think they've been under control. They have the audacity, they have the hubris Absolutely. to know what their future could become and still do everything exactly the way that it'll happen, but think they've got a handle on it. What would, of course, yeah, will be, they, they also have the hubris to ignore the threat of, of mutually assured destruction, which leads ah. to the, the civilization getting blown up. That's true, too. That's true, too. You know, it's, I, and I, think it's a, I think it's a strong statement. I mean, look, on a regular basis, if you watch the news today, you see us ignoring examples uh, of, of that came before and, and making the same mistake. So it's entirely believable. I, I, I think it's one of the strengths of the fourth film, in fact, is the fact that it that they totally ignore all the lessons of the third film. <laughs> Again, that's well, why yeah, I, I, don't I love Conquest. Well, that's a real stream of hubris does run through all 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 three movies. You know, the first film, the, you know, the apes have a tremendous amount of hubris loading over the humans, thinking, well, a human could never talk. If he talks at all, he must be a mutant or it's a parlor trick. And of course, the second film, the, the the future mutants display a lot of arrogance. The gorillas think you know have this this arrogance and this hubris to think that they can go into the forbidden zone and destroy whatever they find. And and, yep. and again, the hubris continues in this film throughout the rest of the series. Well, in the argument, you know, it's... no, please go ahead. Oh, uh, <laughs> the argument they make in Escape from the Planet of the Apes for killing these apes is they make the Hitler comparison. If you made a time machine and were able to go back in time to kill Adolf Hitler as a baby. Um, if you were to go back in time and kill Adolf Hitler as a baby, would you do it? You'd be killing a baby. That act would be wrong, but yet you'd be doing it for the greater good of humanity. That's not an easy question to answer, necessarily. Well, well that's where it gets interesting, because, yes, you, you could, you know, kill the baby, or the, you could kill the infant Hitler, or in this case, you know, kill the infant uh, baby ate Milo, but the circumstances that, like, let's go back, well, let's just I don't want to mix my metaphors too badly, but going back to the Second World War, if you were to kill the infant Hitler, yes, that does remove Adolf Hitler, the historical personage from the timeline, but the social and economic forces that led to the creation of the Nazi Party and led to the Nazi Party's rise still exist. So and wouldn't we just get another version of the same horrible war? You know, and he could um, have twice as mad in control. Very true. The, the timeline as... as um, as Cornelius describes in this film, it's not the same as what happens in the fourth and fifth film. And, 
in fandom, it's kind of split. You know, a lot of people believe it's a circular timeline because that's what the, the that's what Paul Dane imagined with the with writing the films. But a lot of people also believe that it's an alternate timeline. And given what you just said, it's interesting to notice that uh, if they did in fact change time, I mean, hundreds of years didn't pass before the revolution. That basically um, they they stopped nothing by 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 killing the couple and trying to kill their baby. Uh, if anything, they moved it up by hundreds of years. Yeah, but still, they also have, have the the different world. I guess that was created in the fifth movie. Because you have world. Hmm. I'm sorry. You know the problem I'm having is that like I'm only hearing part of your speech. I'm sorry. What, you said something sorry, about. I'll, I'll, I'm going to try and speak more clearly into the mic. Um, <laughs> with the fifth movie, you have that different future of ape. Mm-hmm and mankind living together right and celebrating caesar uh, it, it, it i i guess well keep in mind though that that scene is only 700 years um after uh, after the rest of the fifth film it's actually you know more than a more than a millennium before the first film so uh, and, that, and that's part of why people are torn is that some see it as like it depends you know what it is it depends on how you interpret that crying statue uh because one could argue that he's crying, Caesar's crying at the end because uh, man because the, despite the fact that they're getting along now and in their classrooms together, they're going to end up with mankind being butt scratching savages eating corn. Um, or you could say it as he's crying because the ape, the ape kid just pushed the human kid and that's not in, in line. You know, it, it depends on how you look at it. Um, those who, who believe in a circular timeline versus those who believe in alternate, you know, have, can cite that movie as evidence. So <laughs> I guess it's all a matter of interpretation. That's, that's a really, that's interesting. You said it. That's, huh. I never thought of it like that. Yeah. Well, hey, you know, it's, well, um, it's, no, oh, please, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, um, I really, you know who I want to talk about who's awesome in this movie and the next movie? Ricardo Montalban. Oh, yes. Can we talk a little bit about the circus? Sure. Yeah, before you uh, before you say that, let me tell you something about, about Montalban. I actually um, I interviewed him once uh, for cool. Star Trek Communicator magazine, oh, and cool. um, one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Uh, I, I, I figured, well, this is Ricardo Montalban. I'll be lucky if I get 15, 20 minutes. I was on the <laughs> phone with him for two hours, and the reason was he wouldn't get off the phone. <laughs> he, That's he, awesome. he was hilarious. He, yeah, he was just the, probably the nicest guy I've ever interviewed, and. Um, what was hilarious is that uh, towards the end of, and you, and you you can hear my accent, so you can tell you know where I'm from. Uh, at the end of the two hours on the phone, he said, uh, "Richard, I want to ask you something." And I said, "Sure." And he said, "It has been such a pleasure, such a great pleasure to speak to you, but I must know. There's a strong hint of a British accent. Are you from England?" And I thought, "What?" <laughs> Uh, no, <laughs> but the, and, and yet, but he was hilarious. The guy was so charming, and um, yeah, it was a real. I was, I was as a result. I was really affected when I heard. You know, I'm not. I don't. You know, you don't know celebrities, and, and, and you hear of their passing. It's it's sad, but uh, mm. but you know, I actually have spoken to this guy for two hours. It was it was um, it was a pleasure, and I'm I feel privileged to have gotten to be able to speak to him. Absolutely, that is an awesome. That's. That's a fantasy granted. Oh, speaking of, you said um, you did some work for Star Trek Communicator. Mm-hmm. Would you like to hear? Yeah, it? I um. Oh, oh sure. I uh, 
unfortunately, the magazine folded at a time when I was getting a lot of work with them, so I wish it hadn't. But um, Star Trek Communicator was, um, before the current Star Trek magazine, it was the uh, official Star Trek magazine, um, done by uh, Dan Madsen and Larry Nemechek. And I was a columnist on that magazine each month, and then uh, also I um, did interviewing and reporting and um, whatever they asked me to do. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Probably the best writing gig I ever had, and I kind of disappointed, well, kind of, very disappointed when it ended. I, I was going to say, speaking of Star Trek, a few years ago at a Dragon Con, a comic convention in Atlanta, Georgia, I went to a panel where uh, Harlan Ellison was speaking. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. And um, this is sort of yeah. a funny... So Harlan Ellison is probably best known for writing the Star Trek episode. I don't even know the name of it. I'm not that... The city and the edge forever, of course. Yep. Yep. And that and being grouchy. Oh no, yeah, this has to be with me being insulted by Harlan Ellison three times in front of a crowd of two hundred people. So it doesn't get any better than that. No, if you're going to be insulted by be insulted by the best. Right. So I, I come to this convention and people dress up at conventions. I thought I'm going to do the opposite of dressing up. So I wore <laughs> jeans and a white T-shirt that says uh, Chun Li rocks or I love Chun Li, some Street Fighter. That you wrote yourself. I wrote myself with Sharpie. <laughs> So, and, and I walk in, and Harlan Ellison is 20 minutes late to uh, this panel. He, he's not the only person on the panel. It's a forum of sci-fi writers talking about stuff. And Harlan Ellison gets on, and he starts talking, and uh, I, I really can't do a good imitation of him. He says, these kids today, you know, they don't know nothing about history. Uh, you, you, do you know who the Lusitania is? What the Lusitania is? And, and he points to me. And and two seconds, I can't remember that the Lusitania had to do with kicking off America's involvement in World War One. And since I can't think of that answer in two seconds, it was a I, boat. I it was a boat. Yeah, it was a boat. But um, I can't think of the answer in two seconds. And he he turns to me and snorts, says, "See, that's the problem with kids today." God, yeah, yeah he is a very. Uh... He's known for suing anybody who says something negative, so I'm going to hold off. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. He copyrighted his own name under the company he founded, the Kilimanjaro Group. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so you can't publish the name Harlan Ellison without risking a copyright infringement lawsuit. I will, wow. I will say, if you can find it, he wrote... Um, he used to write film reviews for, I think, a ma- magazine of uh, fantasy and science fiction years ago. And those are collected in a uh, trade paperback go- co- book called Watching, which has been out of print for, I think, 25 years. But okay. it's his very acerbic style of him reviewing movies, and he hates pretty much everything in there. Except- we, should get him in- we should get him on. Oh, Lord. Oh, geez. Maybe. Um, years ago, I saw him at a convention. Uh, it was him and Peter David, it might have been J. Michael Straczynski. I'm sorry. I think I think it was the three of them that were up on stage, and he told a story to the audience in which he basically tried to convince the audience that he had killed a man and had written a novel about it, <laughs> <laughs> but the novel was never published in America, so it wasn't it wasn't useful as as evidence or something along those lines. And it, it was obvious he was BSing, but he kept such a straight face that he did not want to let on to the fact that. Uh, <laughs> that, that this wasn't the case. So there were people who walked out of there going, you think Harlan Ellison killed a man? <laughs> Murder. Well, you know, the name of that book, A Million Little I, I, Pieces. I could, <laughs> no, oh, you, oh, oh, you know the story. Okay. 
well, like Carlin Ellison, when he made that comment about the Lusitania and making fun of me, uh, an older woman sat next to me and she put her hand on my shoulder, comforting me. <laughs> you well, you know, anyone who's been anywhere with him probably knows this is par for the course with a guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it was a very amusing story. Uncle Milkshake, is that how you met your fiance? No, no, it's not. I um, but she was wearing an ape costume. Funnily enough, no, that's not <laughs> that's not true at all. Uh, oh, and, okay, uh, back to Escape from Planet of the Apes. Oh, and that's right. Ricardo Montalban is so wonderful in his brief role in this film as the head of the circus. And there's the part they come up to him. They're looking for a place where they're on the run. They're trying to hide their ape baby and uh, trying to hide out with them for a bit. He's like, will I take these two fugitive apes? And he pauses, and then he, he breaks out into a wide grin and says, of course, of course. Senor Armando. He's like, oh, God, he's he's such a humanitarian, except they're not human. Apitarian? An apitarian? Yeah. Apitarian, um, there you go. Yeah, Primitarian. But, but they're so lucky that, oddly enough, this is, uh, circus also has an ape uh, that just had a baby. So there we get the confusion between the the infant that is shot in the final reels of the movie and then also the ape that is at the zoo, which... Yeah, that's that's the, the twist in this are. film. We find out at the end that the ape infant that Zero was cuddling that was shot and killed is not, in fact, the baby Milo. It is, in fact, the circus ape's baby. So the last mm-hmm. image we get uh, cuts to a cage in, in the circus... And there's the mother ape holding this tiny, uh, this tiny baby chimpanzee, and the baby chimpanzee starts looking around and, and starts in English asking for its mother. Just says, "Mama, mama, mama." mama. And, it's re- and then it just kind of stops. And it's no, it's that was really that chilling. was amazing to me because I was really sad when the baby was. I was like, <gasps> I, w- I was surprised. The first time I ever saw this, I was like, "Oh my god, that's pretty gruesome and awful." Well, it hits you hard. Yeah. And you had you had seen it as a kid, or you mean you you just saw it recently for the first time? Oh, no, I saw it when I was a kid. Um, I'm trying to remember when I saw it. It had to have been on Sci-Fi Channel or TNT or AMC, one of those. One of know, I first saw this movie on the Disney Channel. Because they, oh, yeah. they did, like, Planet of the Ape. Um, they did all the movies in order on Sci-Fi Channel. I forget if it was a certain date or if it was in... Maybe it wasn't July 4th. For some reason, they did it. It was some celebration. Like years ago, where they did, uh, like, they had the Roddy McDowell bumpers in between on the commercials? This is oh, back yeah. when they actually played movies that they didn't make. Yeah, this is, uh, I, I know the, mar- if it's the same marathon we're talking about, they used to show clips of Roddy McDowell during the commercials, uh, discussing, yes. uh, like, 30 or 40 yes. second clips. Yeah, that, that was a lot of fun. I, I actually, um, somewhere, I have all those bumpers somewhere on a CD. They're oh, cool wow. to watch. I don't know where they. I have to find them, but uh, if I can find them, I'll email them to you. That's cool. 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 Yeah. There's a. And I was watching that last scene of this film, where the ape is saying "mama," and if you look really closely, you can tell what they did is they just took a scene where the baby chimpanzee is moving its mouth, and they loop that scene yeah. over again and again and again, because it's a bobbing camera move that repeats itself. Yeah. As a result, it looks like the cage is slightly moving up and down. <laughs> But I mean, yeah. it, it's still absolutely. Uh, oh, of course, very it's a wonderful ending. Chilling, and it, yeah. although it's a plot twist, I think they give some hints to it throughout. Well, it makes per- it well, doesn't come out of nowhere. Do, it makes perfect sense. 
if, if the, the future's uh, going to happen. Um, with uh, Zero making eye t- contact with, uh, with Heloise, the, uh, the, the, the non-intelligent ape, uh, you know, that scene, by the way, is, is one that, that lends credence to an interesting idea that came out of the, the fourth film, which is this, which is, and, and not everyone buys into it, um, and I, I'm more here just reporting rather than saying it's my opinion, but some fans believe that both Zira and Cornelius were psychic. The reason they believe this is because in the third film, somehow, Zira manages to get the baby away from Heloise, but uh, <laughs> probably Heloise would have ripped her shreds if she tried it, but so, so she must have somehow communicated with her. And if that sounds far-fetched, consider that somehow, 20 years later, her son is able to walk through town and inspire apes everywhere to rebel just by looking at them. Mm. Um, Ooh, he manages that's... You're right. So, so I mean, just walking into a, just walking into a restaurant, he suddenly inspires. Well, I mean, it's idiotic in and of itself that someone would have apes working as waiters. But putting <laughs> putting that aside, um, the, the fact is there are ape waiters there. Yeah, it, it, there are ape waiters there, and they are handling knives and fire, which is just you know mind-boggling. And he um, he's able to just look at them, and, and and in some cases they're not even looking at him. They they know somehow to turn and look at him. So it's as if there's some sort of subliminal communication going on and it, it's hinted at at the end of the fourth film where he talks about the way an emperor moth can communicate with other moths over a distance of miles and that oh being an ape could do better so the implication is that the reason this is all happening in so short a period of time and again there's half your fans are probably going to say I'm an idiot over having said this I'm just pointing out what some people say um, that that Zira communicated with Heloise to get her to get the ba- give her the baby, and Cornel- uh, Caesar uh, uh, inherited that trait. Well, t- to calm some fans, if I might offer a counterpoint, um, mm-hmm. that, that I think I think it's like you know every, you know every year in, in primatology we we do find out how close chimpanzees and other apes are to us. I, I think you know that, that Cornelius and Zira communicating with that chimpanzee in the circus. I think that's more like Taylor communicating with Nova in the first film. They, point. you know, these apes are far. You know, the chimpanzee is far closer to a human level intelligence than anyone gives it credit for. But these mm-hmm. apes are willing to 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 try to reach out to it in that way, and that makes their communication successful. Uh, it's an excellent point, and um, I totally buy it. <laughs> For those who uh, who do like the psychic chimp idea, there's a um, I know there's a comic series from Mister Comics called um, Re- um, Revolution on the Planet of the Apes uh, by Ty Templeton and Joel O'Brien. Came out a few years ago, and it, it's a bridge story between the fourth and fifth movies. And that's the core premise of it is is that uh, is is that Caesar had these abilities, and it explains a lot. Um, some fans are divided on on this story. That there's aspects of it that they don't like. Um, I happen to think it's brilliant. Um, I, I think it's a really amazing bridge between the fourth and fifth films, and uh, I recommend tracking it down if you can. Revolution on the Planet of the Apes. Cool. The, um, we were talking about dark moments in this film, and one that we uh, had missed is the, I don't know if you'd call it the Securities Commission, basically based the presidential on... Commission? The presidential Commission? Commission, based on the evidence... <laughs> that had been recorded of Zero talking while uh-huh. under the, the truth serum recommend mm-hmm. that, not that they kill the two apes, but that they stop the baby from being born, that they perform a ape abortion, so to speak. Right. It's pretty chilling. Yeah. 
Which again, it, 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 it raises into it comes into raises into question um, a lot of issues about the power of government. But at the same time, they're not American citizens. They're not human. Jeez. Oh, how different is that than no, no no? How different is that than just doing it to a regular rate? Just because you, you know what's what's really fascinating, and I just and I just noticed this. This film was released uh, in 1971, but it takes place in 1973. 1973 was the same year as the Roe versus Wade decision. Ooh. And I don't want to claim the movie Psychic and Predicts the Future, but I think that's an amazing parallel. Well, yeah, here's the question. Why, what was happening in the world? Okay, we see the relevance now. Was anything happening in 1971 that was relevant for this movie to be made? Well, I, I would say what it touches on, it touches on the, the women's liberation and the the sexual revolution, you know, when, when Zira... When Zira Absolutely. starts speaking to women's groups and is, you know, what's her role in this society? It, it really speaks to the to the women's empowerment movement, which was which was getting steamed during that period. In fact, that scene probably worked better then than it does now, because it was so it was such a hot topic at the time. Yeah, I think it definitely resonates for that reason. Because she's a scientist. That's true. Interesting. <laughs> I, for one, am glad. I'm trying to think didn't... if there were any other social issues, and I don't remember. I was pretty young in 1971, so it's hard for me to recall offhand. I was three. Well, I would say those would be the biggest ones. Yeah, and of course, it does touch on the American Soviet, the American and Soviet space race. When there's there's that theory, one of the theories is, well, what if these apes were somehow created by the Russians? What if they're part of a Russian project, and that's why we've never heard of them? Absolutely. But I, I guess that's as far as it goes. <laughs> Russian apes. It's the Red Ghost and his super apes. Oh, I was going to make that reference. You beat me to it. <laughs> you can make an ultra-humanite reference. Nah. Nah, okay. not the time. Now, there are uh, rumors of a script floating around Hollywood for a, uh, a reboot slash prequel to uh, Planet of the Apes called Caesar that I guess... Yeah, it's have... more than rumor at this point. Oh, is it actually well, going into development, or... Yeah, it's uh, supposed to come out in 2011, if I understand correctly. Wow. Um, it was originally uh, being done by um, uh, Scott Frank, and for the life of me, offhand, I'm drawing a blank on who's doing it instead. Um, Arg. It was a... Uh, oh, well, I'll look it up afterwards and cringe that I don't remember it. But, yeah, it's um, going to be made this year. Um, I've heard a few things about it. I, I, if... It, Keep in mind that you know this could all be wrong when the movie comes out. But what I've heard is that uh, is that the apes won't speak. It's going to be um, from think I think it was sign language that they're going to communicate by. Um, and um, if Amy, you go to uh, Amy you go to Chud, if what? Amy, Amy, good gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I got that. If you go to uh, Chud.com, there's um, an article. I don't know, like a month ago, few something like that. Uh, that that kind of outlined what the plot was about. I don't know sign language apes. I think they have to talk for it to be viable. I don't know. I'm sorry. Are you guys still there? I don't hear anybody now. Yes. Oh, we're still here. Hello. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Okay. I, I guess the connection's not great. So sometimes there. it sounds like everyone vanished. We sometimes say, have dead it. I was gonna say. Um, there's also news that Ridley Scott is supposed to be doing some prequel movies to uh, Alien. 
which could be Alien, yeah, yeah. I hear there's going to be two of them. Yeah, it's the latest I've read. You know, i got to tell you, I mean, I think Hollywood needs to be a little more original. And I'm sure that I'm entirely unoriginal in having said that, because everyone says it. But when you look at the slate of movies for the last couple of years and what's coming up, it's all prequels, reboots, sequels, reimaginings. Oh, yeah. Uh, Clash of the Titans was awful. Yeah, I didn't even bother going. It looked really pretty bad. Yeah. Speaking of that movie Caesar, um, I brought up the article on Chud. I'm just going to read a paragraph from it that just summarizes what the script is about as of now. If you don't mind. Uh, Go ahead. So, Caesar Rise of the Apes is centered on genetic research. Will is a doctor trying to cure Alzheimer's, a disease that afflicts his father. He's working with monkeys to create a benign virus that can get into brain tissue and restore functionality. After his research is shut down, he's left with just one chimp, the child of his most promising subject, and Will raises him at home. Young Caesar is incredibly intelligent for an ape, and over time he continues to mutate and evolve, looking less like a chimp and moving on from sign language to actual speech. Eventually, Caesar ends up leading an army of apes in an uprising just as catastrophe strikes mankind. I guess so that my question is, where's Caesar going to find an army of apes? <laughs> At the uh, zoo. Yeah. And technically, isn't that also the plot for the ape in Lawnmower Man? <laughs> the, the ape in Lawnmower <laughs> Man has a VR helmet and shoots a person. Um, oh, I think we need to get hey, to play Caesar then. Well, too. <laughs> hey, that does have a sequel. <laughs> that does have a sequel. Uh, good stuff. If only Pierce Brosnan was the voice of Caesar, then you'd really have something. Absolutely. That uh, yeah, yeah. I am. Um, I, I. I'm torn about this movie. I mean, part of me, part of me wants to see it. I mean, obviously, I want it to succeed. I want it to do well, but it, it just doesn't sound like Planet of the Apes to me. Um, and so it, um, that, I that's what I'd say. Yeah, I like the idea. I like the premise. I like what they've the way they've set it up. But don't try to connect it to the Planet of the Apes. Do your own ape movie with that premise. And to their credit, they're not calling it Planet of the Apes. It's Caesar Rise of the Apes. I mean, I suppose had they called it Rise of the Planet of the Apes, my hackles might be a bit up more, you know, because you could say, <laughs> well, it's not. It's it's more of like an homage than a than a, a um, depending on how they do it. I mean, from what I understand, there's going to be characters that are going to have. Like like throwaway characters that are going to have names um, based on both the characters and cast of the first film. <laughs> Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Actually, I have a question for you. Um, of all the non-canon references to Planet of the Apes, do you have a favorite comedy sketch or comedy callback to Planet of the Apes? Huh. Well. Um... I happen to think that the uh, the Troy McClure um, thing on The Simpsons uh, musical, uh, yes. the, um, the musical is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. Oh, it's so uh, good. I also think that when Charlton Heston hosted Saturday Night Live and they did um, Studio of the Apes, I don't know if you guys saw that, but the entire the idea was that the entire uh, the entire cast and, and audience of, um, of of Saturday Night Live were apes, and uh, it was hilarious. Um, Wow, what else? Yeah, those two stand out more than others. Oh, also, of course, uh, the scene in Spaceballs. Oh, yes. Um, yes, good callback. That goes the planet. Uh, he, those three. Well, oh, you know, another one of uh, Mad Magazine's spoofs over the years. Those, those, They always did well with those. Oh, huh. I don't think I ever read their spoof. 
Yeah, if you like Mad Magazine, they released a uh, a DVD you put in your uh, computer that has every single issue, I think from the mid '50s up until the uh, early 2000s. Yeah, from uh, GIT Core. Yeah. So I mean, that's a pretty neat thing to look at if you like. Mm-hmm. Classic Mad Magazine. You know, when I was a kid, I, I used to buy those every week, every month rather. <laughs> every week, they didn't come out every week. Yeah. Every month. And, oh, me too. Um, I, I remember, you know, what around the time I stopped is when the price tag. You know, eventually rose from you know, seventy-five cents cheap to a dollar cheap to a dollar fifty cheap, and it got to the point where it was like you know, your house mortgage cheap. And at that point, I said it's just not worth it, and and I stopped. And I, I think it stopped getting funny after a while. I wound up going to real comics, like like DC and Marvel and stuff through Mad Magazine and Cracked. Um, I wound up going over to those, and now those are at three ninety-nine wow. um, for like twenty Absolutely. pages. Ugh. Yep. I mean that's any magazine yeah. nowadays. It's I used to collect. I used to collect a lot of the uh, computer gaming magazines like PC Gamer. Those used to be 400 pages an issue. Yeah. And now it's what 80 pages or 50 pages, including advertisements. God, I know. Well, well, to be fair, that when when PC Gamer held the record for largest magazine, a good chunk of that was ad space and not real PC Gamer content. Well, that's Which pretty much the key. The that's the key. It's the ad content that's been the problem. I, I um, by day I, I work in, in publishing field, and um, wow, I've just I'm seeing what, magazines close every day, um, and it's large part of it is oh, this. I mean, I wouldn't even, you know we would need another hour to discuss that, but it, basically there's just so many, so many factors uh, in terms of people not traveling, people not going to trade shows, people not wanting to pay for what they can get online. But a, and a large part of it is about the lack of advertising dollars. And if you can't, um, when, you, when you set up an issue, there's a, there's, a, you know, there's a proportion. You can't put in 400 pages of articles and four ads. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a large chunk of it right there. Once the ads go, the page count goes down. And people lose jobs. And, you know, I've, it sucks how many times I've seen people lose jobs over that. Almost makes you wish the apes would take over. Oh, they just use the work papers, up. the line out It's so much simpler if we just sat and they they change our hay and feed us. Yep. All right. Well, well. look at it this way: if uh, if that took over and we could all have women like Nova, I'd almost be okay with it. <laughs> all right. No, I'll, I'll grant you that. Absolutely, man. <laughs> We're gonna have to wrap things up pretty soon here. So, uh, in conclusion, ah, I can't speak. In conclusion, would you recommend Escape from Planet of the Apes? What do I recommend? Would you recommend, would you recommend someone watch it? it? Oh, what I recommend? Oh, okay. I would recommend this film to uh, anybody who likes science fiction, um, who likes Roddy McDowell, who likes Planet of the Apes, or who likes people who dress up like apes. Wholeheartedly. <laughs> I, I would certainly recommend it if you uh, if you want to watch Planet of the Apes, you don't get the full effect unless you make it to to the third movie at least. Uh, and uh, so I, I heartily recommend it. Uh, definitely watch, wa- at least watch the first one. Preferably watch the second one. When you get to Escape from the Planet of the Apes, definitely watch it, enjoy it. Although I do that if the person watching it isn't a fan of Planet of the Apes, they probably won't be able to take it seriously, which is a real shame. I think I think as silly as this as Escape can be, if you're willing to take it seriously, it's a very rewarding film. I agree totally. I agree with Thrasher. Um, I like this because it's the precursor for one of my favorite of the Apes um, movies. I, I don't know. I don't like the second one, so frankly, I'd watch the first one, skip over the second, 
go to the third and continue watching. Yeah, I think, I think there's something to be found in each of the five movies that make it work. Um, I agree with you that the the second and and a lot of people will say the fifth are weaker, but um, I think the the series works best when you watch all five in the order they released, because one naturally leads to the next, uh, or or in some cases clunkily leads to the next, leads to the next. <laughs> but um, but I, I do think that uh, I do think they're all worth watching. Um, and 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 the second one does hold a uh, does hold a a lot of fondness for me. It, it's a uh, I, I get I get such a chuckle out of the whole um, nuclear paranoia thing, you know, which is very much a product of the time in which it came out. I just, what makes the second one so great for me, not to derail the conversation, but um, I love anything that ha any movie that has the balls to have a nuclear weapon supplant Christ as a center of worship. That, that took some balls. Yeah, and I give them a lot of credit for being willing to do that, you know. Call. Yeah, I don't know if you could get away with that now with all the stuff. Going I don't think you well, would. Well, it's not that you wouldn't get away with it; it's they wouldn't have the courage to try it. Ugh, and that just reminds That's me right of there. The, the controversy with the recent South Park episode. The focus groups wouldn't like it, so they wouldn't use it. Yep. Well, they'd have to put it. The, the other thing is, they would probably, if they were to redo the second film now, um, well, they would change a whole lot, but we wouldn't get as dark an ending either. I uh, highly recommend Escape from Planet of the Apes. It's one of the better sequels. It, um, you know, next time you go to the grocery store and you're buying a bunch of bananas, you should stop by the video section and get Escape from the Planet of the Apes to watch. Because that's where they keep it. Yes, by the <laughs> they keep it. <laughs> well, their their best kept cold, you know, so it's understandable. If they have a refrigerator, also pick up a bottle of champagne while you're at it too, because bananas taste best with grape juice plus. Yes. Oh. <laughs> Grab yourself some grape juice plus a banana and escape from Planet of the Apes. You'll have yourself a night you'll never be able to forget. Uh, Rich, Absolutely. thanks again for coming on the sequel cast. Well, thank this you for having me. Rich, uh, Come you, back to number five. Can you uh, plug your book? Uh, I can plug it. Um, the, the book is called Timeline of the Planet of the Apes, The Definitive Chronology, and you can find a cover and ordering information uh, and a lot of pointless background about me at www.halflinebooks.com it's from Halfline Books which is a real fancy way of saying it's from me and then we'll also post Matt we can also post that on the site as well with the yeah, uh, podcast we cool. record these episodes pretty far in advance so it won't be on the website for about six weeks or so but I'll definitely send you an email Matt which one are you on I am, this week I'm going to put up the uh, episode on the first Reanimator film. Sweet. So oh. I'm a bit behind, but... Great movie. Yeah, wonderful. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been a pleasure, guys. You guys have a lot of fun. And uh, if ever you want me to come back, I'm more than happy to. And if you don't oh, want to, I do. Understand. <laughs> All right, fantastic. Talk Thank you, you very much, guys. Yep. Take care. Bye. Uh, so you should, should we come up with a snappy ending <laughs> for this podcast? No, uh, I thought... I thought that was perfect, the bananas and the wine. Oh, and yeah. I thought that was perfect.